Ready? Hit it! Hello everyone and welcome to Twice Nightly The Podcast with Maria Lovelady and Michael Allen Bailey, a podcast that aims to bring everything variety out of the wings and into the limelight. So what are we waiting for? Let's raise the curtain and start the show! Coming up on today's show, we talk to acting teachers to the stars, Ken Ray. We find out the link between Variety Theatre and Commedia dell'arte. And do you know the history of the word scenario? Well, you will by the end of this episode. Hello everyone, it's nice to be back with you. Thank you so much for getting in touch last week about your love for Josephine Baker. We absolutely loved doing that episode and it was so great to hear that you enjoyed it too. What are we up to tonight though, Mike? Well, it never stops, does it? It never stops because tonight we are off to the CAA to record next week's episode, which we're very, very excited to bring you. We are chatting to Jack and Jordan. And I feel like I should just like leave it at their first names and not even reveal their second names until next week. You know, like like... Madonna. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Madonna and Cher. (laughs) We're basically talking to Madonna and Cher of the music hall world. (laughs) And doing it at the CAA as well. What a fabulous location to be going to speak to them. It is. So those of you that don't know or are not London-centric, the CAA is in the middle of Covent Garden. So we're sashaying on down there tonight, aren't we, to the CAA to speak to them all about Brick Lane Music Hall. It's a bit like Diagon Alley to get in. You've got to like tap the right bricks, isn't it, to get in? In fact, do you remember the first time we went? Because obviously you have to be members to get in. And the first time we went, we were literally just loitering around in the foyer for ages, trying to not look suspicious, but in the process looking really suspicious. And in the end, you have to go, Sherbet Lemons. <laughs> People were coming out in suits, really just staring at us like, who are these outsiders? But now we're insiders and we're going tonight (laughs) and we can't wait. And we're so excited to share that episode with you next week, whatever it may bring. All about our findings at the CAA and the boys from Brick Lane in our episode next week. So make sure you tune into that. That's a musical in itself, isn't it? The boys from Brick Lane. I love it. Isn't it such a great title? The boys from Brick Lane. Like the infinite possibilities of that title. The boys from Brick Lane. What is happening with the boys from Brick Lane? I feel like it would be like one of those musicals, sort of West Side Story-esque, where it was all really super macho, but actually they were all in like tight trousers with the tops off and just little neckerchiefs. Exactly. Like the boys from... Have I said that right? Neckerchiefs? Yeah, I think so. Like the boys from Flat Five. Yeah. Linking it back to (laughs) Victoria Wood as well. But today we've got a cracking episode for you as we talk to acting teacher to the stars, Ken Ray. Ken has been teaching for 40 years all over the world, but mainly at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, teaching some of the biggest names in show business, such as Lily James, Daniel Craig, Orlando Bloom, Ewan McGregor, Damian Lewis, just to name a few. All the cast of extras, basically. (laughs) Ricky Gervais just rang Ken and said, who can you give me, Ken? Who can who'll do this little show for me? Now he has to add casting director to his CV. <laughs> so we spoke to Ken all about the performers of Variety Theatre and what qualities that actors need to have to rise to the top. Because that's one of those things, isn't it? It's like the million dollar question, you know? It's that question of there's no 
right answer to it really is it because if you could bottle up that answer and sell it and that's exactly what ken has done with his book and we spoke to him a lot about the theatrical tradition of commedia dell'arte which i didn't know that much about going into the interview i knew the basics but he was able to really really shine a light on exactly what that was and it was so so interesting and also how influential that's been on variety and music hall and pantomime and all of these things all of the things traditions of theatre that we still love today and the, the the whole reason we're still talking about it. I think there are so many gems in this interview for variety theatre enthusiasts and for budding and professional actors alike. I really enjoyed hearing about, ready, Fucker Papa. I hope I've Hello. said that right. <laughs> Do you know what? Think- we need, You know the way we did a, a highlights of series one last year? We just need to release a highlight this year of all your foreign pronunciations. Fucker Papa. I, after butchering all the French last week <laughs> in the Joseph B. Baker episode, I maybe shouldn't attempt it again. Ken says it beautifully. Fuck a papa, which is the idea of us looking back on theatrical traditions in order to make our theatre better today. And I just think that's the main reason we're doing this podcast, really, isn't it? Exactly. Now, if you want to read more about Ken's work, you can buy his fantastic book, The Outstanding Actor, or Hot Off the Press. You heard it here first. <laughs> Don't say we don't give you exclusives on the Twice Nightly podcast. Ken is releasing an online course called Ken Ray Teaches Acting. I mean, you know, he might as well release one called Spin Straw into Gold, might he? Catch lightning <laughs> in a bottle. And Ken's course will be available to anyone on Teachable. The course is about nine hours and includes Ken's best acting exercises and focuses on how actors can step up to the next level to achieve greater success. Once the course is live this weekend, we will include all the links on all of our social media and, of course, in the show notes of this episode. It's an online course, right? Yep. Oh, fabulous. So you can do it in the comfort of your own home without even wearing pants? (laughs) Well, the amount of uh, topless podcasts you've done, that suits you perfectly. (laughs) Right. We are dragging this podcast down into the gutter. Let's take it back up to the stars and let's get... Ken Rayon, without further ado, here he is to tell us all about his fantastic career, Ken Ray. Ken, it's wonderful to be with you today. It's my pleasure. Nice to be here. We would love to discuss your wonderful career, the incredible book that you've written that has inspired me as an actor and as a teacher. And we'd also love to know about some of the ways that your work can be applied when we're thinking back into the past about variety theatre and music hall and why some of those acts rose to the top and others have been forgotten by history. Yeah, that's quite an important point, isn't it, for anyone in the profession to think on. Do I want to set off and have a wonderful, mediocre career, you know, or do I want to aspire to be at the top? And that's one of the things that has fascinated me over the years. What is it that actually drives someone to become successful? And to what extent can you influence your destiny as as an actor? Just to make a link with your theme on variety theatre, where did this tradition of variety theatre come from? And where has it gone? What has it led to? And that made me think of going back to my tradition from New Zealand of the the Maori concept of whakapapa. Now, that is a concept of 
of continuity. It's about the legacy you inherit, whether that's legacy of your family, your community, your work organization, or your whole culture, that you are part of that. You, you're aware of what has gone before you and what is going to, to happen in front of you. It says, if you are all linked together as a, an unbreakable chain and the light kind of shines down along this chain and today it shines on you and then it passes on to your the people you've taught or your children, your grandchildren and so on, and it moves on. And you take pride in being part of that, that legacy. None of us just make success out of the blue. We, are all, we all owe it to what went before, the people we came in contact with, the ideas, the traditions that came before. I think that's something that we've been quite aware of, especially in that music hall tradition, when you're looking at actors such as Charlie Chaplin, who grew mm. up through uh, the Fred Carnot circus, replicating completely what other people before him had done. But he was just the first person to be captured on film. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. So this is another idea. I've always thought that all the great theatre traditions of the world were really music theatre, you know, or danced drama. And in terms of the language of your podcast, what, what this is saying is that all the great traditions of the world were variety theatre. For example, go right back to ancient Greece and ancient Rome. You know, these people, they sang, they danced, they mimed, they used mime, there was comedy, there was kind of quite erotic comedy. Sometimes in the Roman theatre, there was live sex on stage. Mm. You, know, you had it all. Um, and then going forward to the tradition of the Commedia dell'arte, one of the supreme examples of the actor's art, you know, that was everything, um, visual comedy. It had to be visual because when these little troops toured around Italy, there were different languages people spoke in those days. And when those troops traveled from Italy to places like um, England, France, Spain, even Russia, they had to be understood because it was, um, people didn't understand the Italian language they were speaking or the various dialects. And it had elements of comedy, of dance, of music, of slapstick, of all those of acrobatics. So it was very visual humor. And also one of my great interests was always the, the ancient traditions of Asian theater, like Kabuki in Japan, Beijing opera, Katakali, dance drama in India, Balinese theater. And they also, they're all mm. variety theater. You know, they have, they have elements of comedy. They have amazing acrobatics. They have songs, dance. It's very visual. And I suppose if you're, you're thinking about modern theater in, in Britain, kind of splits at a certain point, doesn't it? Goes from the spoken tradition, say, Shakespeare, it splits into opera and into ballet. And maybe in the modern musical, maybe it starts to bring that together again. But I think variety theatre is quite interesting that it, it combines all the things that make us want to go to the theatre, that inspire us and engage us and make us feel 
involved. Something that really struck me when I was reading your book was this idea of danger and danger being as part of an actor's performance. And you actually describe that feeling of a circus performer playing with danger because there's that thrill of failure. And I think that idea that uh, variety theater, you know, they had the acrobats, they had all these speciality acts in between uh, the more sort of acts that we recognize today, such as comedians, dancers, people doing a song. To go to the theatre, in your local theatre, and be able to see all of these worldwide traditions that you've just talked about, and you can go at the end of your street and watch in your local theatre these performers that have come all over the world, and it's that thrill of them failing, isn't it, that gets that packed out the houses? Yes, yes it is, yes. There must always be the possibility of failure, I think that's, that's important you know, for an actor. And by danger, I don't mean sort of injuring yourself or the other actor or smashing up the scenery. I often think of it as the tension that exists between you, the performer, and the audience. I think, what will she do now? You know, where's this going? What's she going to do next? Or the fact that you you might lash out and do something wild, or you might just sit there smoldering like a volcano. So it's that kind of tension. You know, these variety performers, they must have had a wonderful sense of that. Going back to the Commedia dell'arte for a moment, we're talking about the middle of the 16th century. This was the first example of professional theatre troops travelling um, around Italy, arriving in, in Europe at that, at that time. It started as street theatre, you know, they would just have a trestle stage about two metres high, very small, maybe two or three metres by two metres. And you could have 10 actors on that without anybody falling off. And they would improvise the play. They would work from um, a little piece of paper attached to the scenery, the backdrop at the, at the back, which said so-and-so comes on and does this and does that. And that's where we get the word scenario from, meaning literally that which is attached to the scenery. And um, they would come and do that. And if they were no good, they made no money. So very quickly, they learned their craft as an actor and became very good and became supremely successful at that. And they played the same roles, more or less, all their lives. And just reading, when you read about the early musical performers, variety performers, young Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, they, they weren't encumbered by social media and that. Um, there weren't films of their early work. So they had a chance to fail and to get it right at the next performance and the next and the next. And by all accounts, they did lots and lots of performances because a lot of them, not a lot of them, but some of them died from exhaustion, didn't they? they were, yes, yeah. They were, they were just burnt out, worn out. And of course, a lot of them started very young. And mm. started young, mm -hmm. yes. And going yeah. back to what you were saying about them playing the same characters all their lives, they were able to practice and practice until they were perfect. Yes. Yes, yes. This was people's life work. This was all they did. It's it's kind of not like now where if you decide you don't want to do it anymore, you might go down another path. People had dedicated their lives to this from a very young age. Perhaps it was a family trade. And they would make sure that they were recognized for that stock character because it, it made them money. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so that keeps you on your toes, doesn't it? You know, you can't take anything for granted. And it, it's interesting, when cinema first began, they suddenly had to find actors who could 
tell a story visually and where were they going to find them? They had to go back to the people who were doing mime and acrobatics and visual comedy in the musicals, in the variety theater to draw into that. And, and so they could adapt their skills. And then later on, I think a group like the Marx Brothers, you know, they're, they're just pure commedia dell'arte. You know, there were a group of people, they're always in every show, they had more or less the same characters they played. The plots were quite similar all the time. And there was lots of slapstick and, and laughs. And we kind of knew the characters. And they worked as an incredible ensemble together you know, to make the play, the play happen. Um, and that's just what Commedia dell'arte troops did. You talked about the professionalism of it. In the Commedia, although it was improvised, you know, they were just improvised to the scenario, they had inserted in, in these plays what they called Lazzi. And a Lazzo, that's the singular, was um, a piece of comic business that might be written into the scenario or it might be just inserted if they felt the audience was getting a bit bored, they would do that. And it often would be just visual humor. And that would be in their repertoire. And that would have been practiced and perfected over hundreds, maybe thousands of performances. So it was really, really um, very slick, slapstick humor. And it's interesting to think that a lot of those gags, because you can read um, collections of these Lazzi, a lot of those gags have actually filtered down into the world of the, uh, the, the musical vaudeville variety theater and into the silent movies. Is there a kind of a modern day example that we would recognize? Well, I think a lot of the, the routines of Buster Keaton, mm. perhaps, that, that would be true. Some of the routines of Laurel and Hardy. In one of your podcasts, you mentioned Tom and Jerry. Yeah. That's pure <laughs> commedia dell'arte. You know, the <laughs> stuff with saucepans, hitting people, violent action, that slapstick. You know, that's the kind of stuff that they were doing in the Commedia dell'arte. And a lot of Chaplin's work. These people were great acrobats. You know, they did their, their own stunts. They had to be young and they had to be fit to be able to, to cope with that. You raised the, the question before about what is it that makes somebody really stand out? There must have been hundreds and hundreds of variety performers traveling all over Britain, you know, trying to find work, trying to stand out, trying to make a living, to get well paid. And only a few of them live down in this tradition, this legacy, as the famous legendary performance. You know, you talk about, you sometimes mention Marie Lloyd, Dan Lino. So what were they doing that the rest were not? And that's something that's preoccupied me a lot in my own work as, as particularly teaching actors over the, the years, about 40 years of teaching thousands of actors in London, Guildhall School of Music and Drama and around the world. Some actors became really very, very successful. You know, people like Ewan McGregor, Jodie Whittaker, Lily James, Hayley Atwell, Damien Lewis, Daniel Craig, you know, what were they doing that the rest were not? Was it a particular quality they had that they were gifted with? Or was it a particular practice they, they followed? And that's what's 
led me to research to find out more about what can I do that can help increase that number of people? Yeah. What, what are the values that you could follow as an actor that would help you become more successful? What is it that drives success? And that led me to boil it down to a number of important values like warmth, you know, because that reaches out to an audience. And if you think going back to musical, to variety theatre, to the silent movies, these actors had great warmth. You know, look at, look at Charlie Chaplin. Maybe that's one of the things that made him stand out. There was a great heart. And today we might see some of that as a bit sentimental and soppy. If you think City Lights, you know, the scene with the blind girl. But at the time... For contemporary audience, that must have been wonderful and really powerful. And they could really relate to that and kind of open their hearts to that. So the quality of warmth is really important for an actor to generate. The opposite of that coldness just turns us off. I think if we're looking at um, old movie stars, you've got someone like Oliver Hardy, who is quite a cynical character. And yet he plays that with such intense warmth. Yeah. Mm. He was cold. Yeah. He would come across almost villainous. But yeah. because he plays that with such warmth and generosity, which is an, another one of your yeah. skills that you advocate for, you know, for me, he just that that's where I can really see that come into action. Yeah, they had great openness, mm. didn't they? So although he, he plays the cynical character, there is a kind of almost a childlike yes. naivety in, in what they're doing. And that's really hard for young actors today to, to mm. tap into that because I can say you, because um, I'm a bit older than you, but um, you, you have grown up in a culture that is more about understatement, mm. that is perhaps more cynical, that's about the throwaway. And it's, it's quite a big leap for an actor to, kind of completely open their heart to be confident in their vulnerability as a strong quality that will touch and engage and inspire audiences. That's really, really difficult. There are not that many around today, but it's a quality that all those, those, those great actors in the early silent movies, in the musical, and they must have had, you know, because you, you've got stories of Marie Lloyd going out, you know, when, Musical performers mm -hmm. were striking for better conditions and that going out on the picket lines and singing to them. Presumably, this is a free performance. He wasn't cynically saying, how much am I getting for this gig? Um, it was something she offered. And that, yes, takes back to the idea of generosity of spirit. You give it. It's an act of love that you give to your audience, you know, with all your heart. And that in turn touches then and comes back. There's a fantastic exercise in your book that I've used with my own students, which is in the generosity chapter about doing it for the fans. Mm, mm. And that ties in completely to what you're saying yeah. that, that uh, Mary Lloyd, she just went out and did that yes. for yeah. the fans. Yes. Yes. And I love that idea that when you're playing around with a scene that you do it in the, in the essence, again, it's coming back to those stock characters of Comedia. Yeah. You're doing it in in the most essence that what your fans will want to yes, see. Yes, yes, yeah. We always we must do it for someone else. When we're young, we do it for our parents. We want them to be proud of us, <laughs> whether they want it or <laughs> <Yes>. not. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you do it. You offer it to your to your audience. You know, with with great love. And you, it's not for you that you will feel good on stage. It just reminds me, when years ago, when I was studying Balinese 
mask dance in, in a little village in Bali. And the, the, the local priest before a rehearsal would come around and, and sprinkle you with, with water. And I, I said to my Danchi, what, what's he doing? He said, well, that's holy water. I said, well, why is he doing that? He said, well, it's to make you dance better, of course. <laughs> and I said, well, when you were dancing, I, I asked this of one of the, the main Balinese dancers on, on the island. When you were dancing, who do you dance for? And I was expecting him to say, you know, for the people, of course. He, said, but he looked at me as if I was stupid and said, well, for the gods, of course. We dance for the gods. And I thought, what an amazing thing. If you can be blessed with that honor to, you know, that your theater becomes an act of, of, you know, of celebration of the gods. Yeah? It becomes an offering that you make to, to the gods. That there can be no possibility of a half-rate, you know, second-level yeah. performance. You, you have to do your best. So that sense of, of warmth, of generosity of spirit is, is really important. And enthusiasm, you know, that you have an enthusiasm for what you do. And that, that is so important because it's so contagious in any situation, any gathering. It spreads through the room and excites and energizes other people. And the opposite of enthusiasm, what lethargy, cynicism, that's contagious. It spreads and makes everybody fearful. If we picture how these music halls and variety theatres were, you know, people were coming out of their houses and filling these huge theatres. There must have been an enormous amount of energy and enthusiasm within the space as a yes. whole to make people continue to keep mm, going, yes. to mm. spend their money on watching these performers. It always fascinated me, you know, as a, as a young actor in New Zealand, it fascinated me that certainly if I was in the first scene, as one of the first actors on stage, is that some nights you would go on stage and the energy of the stage was full and vibrant. And other nights it would feel empty. And that's before mm -hmm. we, the actors, had done anything. And I always thought about, well, how is, what's going on? What is the, is the sort of magical vibration between the energy of the audience and the energy of the actors that makes something wonderful happen? Mm. And lots of great directors have kind of thought about this, like Peter Brook. I think he's always been very interested in, in the energy between actors and, and the audience as that happens. And when you, again, going back to the Asian theatre, when you look at some of those performances that, like the Katakali Theatre that goes all through the night out in the open under the stars um, in the, vi the villages and audiences of hundreds of people dozing off, getting up, walking around, being full of life, you know, waking up, dogs running across the stage, children running around, people selling peanuts or whatever at the side. It's just full of life and energy and, and the actors is that kind of celebration. So that all that kind of influenced me a lot, and particularly as a young director in my work in New Zealand. We would, like the Commedia dell'arte actors, we'd set up a little backdrop, you know, just on tent poles and, you know, stick it into the ground and run around banging a drum, you know, rounding up an audience in bright coloured costumes. And we made masks. We were very interested in Commedia dell'arte, so we wrote Commedia plays of our own, updated those, and performed to people. So it was bringing theatre to life. But 
like variety theatre, we couldn't just stand there talking. We had to have acrobatics, mm. dance, songs, slapstick action. It had to be very visual, like also like the Commedia dell'arte, if it was to attract an audience. I managed to find an old diary I kept on the tour, you know, and say, today we made um, five dollars. <laughs> you know, and then big, big audience today, we actually made $55, our biggest <laughs> so it's again like you were saying if you weren't any good you didn't make any money <laughs> if you were good you survived and then so we you know we made 55 dollars got a tray of fresh peaches for everyone and ice creams all around and then we'd get in the bus oh, and drive on let me think about the idea of accessibility as you said with variety theater that you couldn't just stand there because that isn't something that everybody responds mm. to and it's just made me think some of it has to be visual some of it has to be mm. for hearing some of it has to be about more the cognitive like the understanding every audience member is catered for when you perform mm. like yes, that. Yes. And I think that's something that, that's quite a, quite modern, that modern theatres are trying to reintroduce. Yes. How can we make this accessible for everybody? Mm. Yes, yes. Going back to the Commedia dell'arte, when the Commedia actor walked on stage, they knew, each of them knew that they represented a slice of society. Yeah. So if it was a scene, say, between Arlecchino and Pantalone, the, the master and the servant, Pantalone, the master, when he talks about the, the um, irritability of servants and how lazy they are and terrible, there are people in the audience who know, you know what it's like having terrible servants. And when Arlecchino or Polcinella talks about how hungry he is and how he's beaten up by his master, there are people in the audience who know real hunger and know real cruelty, and they can uh, identify that. So the plays reached everyone. They had something to say to everyone. And you're right, it's much harder to do that today. Because we've touched on Comedia so much, I'm just conscious that some of our listeners might not have an understanding. It might be the first time they've heard of that term. Could we maybe delve a little bit into those stock characters and yes. maybe how we, they manifest within our media still today. Yes, yes, absolutely, yeah. So there was a formula. There were two fathers who had two children. Um, one father would be a merchant, say Pantalone, from which we get the word pantaloon. And the other was often the doctor. And they had children, and those children were in love with each other. But there was an obstacle in the way of them getting together because maybe Pantalone had arranged for his beautiful young daughter to marry the old dirty old man doctor um, who was revolting. And she would just about you know, puke at the idea of that. And because the, the lovers were kind of emotionally immature and vain and petulant and all that, and probably not that bright, it it came to the servants, that's the next level down, who were very bright and witty, had to survive on their wits. It came to the servants to come up with all the ideas that helped get the, the lovers together and to trick the, uh, the fathers. And the servants would be characters like Arlecchino, from which we get Harlequin, uh, Polcinella, Pedrolino, who later became Piero in the French tradition. They were the servants. And all of the actors, the male characters, wore leather half masks and they wore a particular 
costume all the same. So the character was immediately recognizable when they, they came on stage. When you look at a typical Commedia dell'arte play, you see that it's exactly the same formula as a Shakespearean comedy. Mm. Lovers have to get together, there are fathers getting in the way, and there are servants helping sort it out. And that play would last about two or three hours in the piazza. Imagine street theatre holding an audience for that. The idea was you, you scored a laugh, you know, you came on, you brought on that uh, sentiment, you know, you didn't sort of wander on and say, I'm feeling a bit off today. You came on furious or in love or joyous or fearful, and you brought that energy onto this small stage. And then when, once you played your scene, you got off and the next one came on. So there was a tremendous sense of momentum. It was like like a rugby team, you know, just like the All Blacks, driving this to get the goal, the goal being the laughter of the audience and the appreciation of the audience. And um, as I said, they play, play the same role pretty well all their, their lives. And that tradition of Commedia dell'arte lasted for about 300 years. But those characters have gone into other theatre traditions. Polcinella became part of Punch and Judy, Alecchino came into the English pantomime tradition. In 1717, there was a British actor called John Rich who was performing, I think, at Drury Lane. And he invented a new form of theatre, which he took from the Roman word pantomimus and called it pantomime. And it was sort of legends and myths. And at a certain point in the play, they were, the scenery would change and the characters would be changed into commedia dell'arte characters. And he was famous for playing the role of um, what he called Harlequin, you know, the one in the, uh, the diamond-shaped colours. So that tradition has gone down, has filtered down, and I think people have used the routines a lot. I think a lot of people can relate to that idea of the stock characters, actors mm. with the same character over and over again with Panto, which is still, mm. for many theatres, one of the, the most profitable times of year. Yes someone might play the same game at a theatre for 10 years and the audience wants to see them do it every mm. time and they know what the gags are going to be. They know the physical routines, as you were talking about before. They know that the lovers are going to, you know, have problems and the servants are going to help them get together. And we know what's going to happen, but we go every Christmas yeah. and it's yeah. really a time that all the family can go. Yes. And yes. every year the jokes are topical. I watched a video on it the other day, Ken, where um, they were putting it into the context of the characters from Faulty Towers, even. Yes. You know, they were yes. linking it back to those characters and saying that they're, they're, there's where the links are yes. in the for the contemporary audience. It's because if you think of Faulty Towers, you've got a cast, the same characters appear in each episode, and the stories are similar. You know, there are different mm -hmm. plots, different situations, but the relationships are the same. So we sort of, we get to know the characters very well. We feel as if we really know them. And again, it must've been the same with the Marx Brothers and mm -hmm. with Laurel and Hardy. So there are those combinations that are seen in different circumstances. Does that happen today, I suppose? The play that went wrong and that, mm -hmm. maybe that's an attempt to revive some of that, that form of theatre. In the 1980s, I was working for The Guardian as a theatre critic, so I saw a lot of these new companies, Complicite, I reviewed their first show at the Almeida, and Trestle Theatre, um, Moving Picture Mime Show, and a lot of these theatres 
came out of the teachings of Jacques Lecoq, um, who also influenced me a lot. You worked yourself with Jacques Lecoq? In the 1980s, I worked with him. And again, that sort of goes back to this Focke-Papa tradition. There were things I learned directly from Jacques Lecoq and things he learned from his mime teachers and the people before him. And I have passed on those things to my students and they to theirs. So you've got this wonderful sense of tradition. But within that, we all innovate. We introduce our own things and we pass on the exercises, say, but we make them our own by adding, adding things to them. I thought the wonderful thing about Lecoq was that I was always struck by the fact that excellent work happened in his presence. Yeah, and the other teachers were very good too, but somehow there wasn't always the magic there from the students. So some, something we did inspired us to produce an excellence. And I just wondered, is there a, a, an almost mystical connection you know, between a, a, a teacher at a high level and the student that passes on, I don't know, a confidence, um, a, a, a spirit of adventurousness or risk that makes things happen. I watched your um, video, which is available on YouTube, which was at the Guildhall, and mm. Lily James speaks before you come out and she said that there was a whatsapp group full of all her old class and they asked for the best memories of you and your classes <laughs> and it was full of everything you've just described so i think you've definitely taken that that presence yourself from jack lecoq and, and been able to pass that on to your students yeah. yeah i think i think a key thing that i try to pass on is the idea of risk i think that's really so important you know because what has fascinated me and is Given the core skills that an actor, you know, very good voice work, movement work, coherent acting process, what are the qualities over and above that that will really make the difference, that will make you stand out? And that's what I've tried to focus on in, in my work. And I think the key things, one is playfulness, your ability to be like a a five-year-old and enjoy playing. And the other is risk-taking, your ability to take risks. By that, I mean to try something that might not work, mm -hmm. that leads you to a better solution and a better, so that you move through a series of controlled failures towards success. I mean, coming back, you know, to the idea of the, the, the star quality, because you, you, you asked before about what is it that made these great musical performers, the variety performers, stand out for all the rest and others fell by the wayside. It's a really interesting question, isn't it? What is that quality? Because it's not necessarily about stardom, wanting to be a star. It's a, for producing an, a level of excellence in, in the work. And I thought thinking of those particular performers, you know, we've only seen the silent movie performers directly, people like Marie Lloyd and that, well, we just have to guess. I thought what helped them stand out is they must, they all had a unique individual personality. There was something that you thought, there's nobody in the game quite like that person. They had a trademark quirk about them. You know, with Chaplin, it was his tramp character. With Laurel and Hardy, their personalities are very clearly defined. 
Um, so there was something unusual or special about the personality or the persona that they brought to, to the work. And they, of course, also had exceptional skill. You know, sometimes if you've um, been in a theatre and you think, well, well, I could do that. <laughs> you don't want your audience to feel like that. But when you go, you mentioned the circus, you know, when you go to the circus or when you go to the music hall or great performance, you think, oh, I, I could never do that. How do they do that? We admire their level of skill. Also, they must have had a tremendous sense of resilience, of grit, of being able to bounce back, you know, in spite of all the knockbacks, to keep on going. When I was researching the second edition of my book, The Outstanding Actor, I interviewed a lot of new actors, some of my past students and that. And the thing that struck me was a lot of them who became successful, they overprepared. So when the unexpected happened, they could cope with it. Yeah? When they were under great pressure, they could cope with it. You have that story in your book about Papa Esadu, who goes on with four hours notice? Yeah, he was in King Lear, uh, Papa, at the, uh, the National Theatre. It was a production by Sam Mendes, so a lot of pressure on it. And he, was, he just had a very unrewarding role, I think, of the King of France or something like that, which is about six lines. And for the rest of the time, you're a sort of soldier coming on, bringing spears on or chairs or whatever. And he was also understudying the role of Edmund. And he would sit in on the rehearsals and, and watch the main actor playing, playing the role until Sam Mendes just got irritated. Said, Papa, do you have to be here? Can't we just get on with the rehearsals? <laughs> no, I want to see, I want to see what's going. He was so enthusiastic about it. And then the press night came, and in the middle of the performance, the actor playing Edmund lost his voice suddenly. And Sam Mendes, he, he told me, he was I, this 21-year-old just out of drama school. And there is the great Sam Mendes coming to me, looking pale and saying, can you go on? Can you go on without the book? And he said, yes, yes, I can do it. And he went. And I thought it's a tremendous mm. metaphor or story, isn't it, of how to succeed in show business is, is over-prepare, be ready, give it everything you've got. And when the unexpected comes, pshum, it's a kind of fairy tale story, but these mm. things do happen. And I think those great musical performers and silent movie performers, they must have prepared meticulously all those slapstick routines. They were so well worked out. So there must have been such a craft and mm. professionalism. And the other thing about them is I think what made them successful is they must have had great heart and warmth. Again, going back to the, the warmth of, of, of Chaplin, the, the warmth of Laurel and Hardy or of Buster Keaton. He seems a very nerdy kind of introverted persona he plays, but there is great warmth there. And in the end, put all that together and it gives them some kind of charisma that attracts the audience to them. Yeah, that fascinates the, the audience. And that's, we could talk for hours just about charisma alone. That's the subject of my next book. Don't be afraid to fail. Keep your ambitions high. Seizing every opportunity <laughs> with enthusiasm and driving forward with confidence. Everything starts from your values. And I think if you get that sorted out, what you really believe in, what you bring to the job, what drives you, 
then that will affect your outward behavior. You will look more confident. You will sound more enthusiastic yeah. you know, when you talk about yourself, your life. So there's a lot we can do. There's a lot we can do that can change our destiny, I think. And you just have to keep believing in that. But doing it not just for yourself, for self-gratification, but for others, for the gods, if you're a Balinese, or for the public, if you're Marie Lloyd or Charlie Chaplin, of going for that. It's an act of generosity, an act of love that you give. And that can give you huge energy that takes you through your life. And you, know, and you can answer the question, what am I doing on this planet? What use am I? You know? So how about you then, Ken? That brings us on to who are some of your favorite variety performers? I don't know that much about Marie Lloyd, but she sounds very, very interesting. But I think, I think Charlie Chaplin was, was very good. When I was I, I, a young kid going to cinema matinees, there would always be a first half and there would be an interval you know, before the main film. And those first halves would be cartoons and silent movies. So I got used to seeing a lot of those you know, that were around. I don't know whether young people today see that so much. They haven't got those references, but I was brought up on that. And I, I just think he did such a lot to move the cinema forward. And when you read about him, you see that um, he, he didn't want to settle for doing one new little film every week. He needed more time to go into it with more detail to make a better job. So it was a kind of a, a revolution in, in filmmaking. And I think in modern terms, uh, I, I think there's a lot to be said for Morecambe and Wise. They, again, had this great sense of love and heart and brought all those varieties and skills and were very aware of the tradition going back to musical that they brought into it to a television audience and i think it's interesting that i don't think an audience needs to know the the lineage no, of no. comedia or no, anything no. but more than wise they absolutely knew what they were doing mm. uh, as mm. you said before the the play that goes wrong mischief theater they absolutely know what they're doing mm. Mm. and i think the trick is to get the audience in the space and it to appear fresh and yes. not, not like it's a, a thousand year old tradition. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, theatre should never be a museum piece. It must be, you know, reinvented and kept alive as we go on. What are some of your favourite or your favourite ever theatre? You must have seen a real spectrum over the years, Ken. I think for me, a favourite space is the, um, the London Coliseum. And it, it means quite a lot to me because when I first arrived in England in 1977, I, I was kind of hosted by the British Council and I wanted to see as much theatre as possible. And in New Zealand, I had been in a play called The Royal Hunt of the Sun. And I found that the English National Opera was doing an opera version of the same play. And I rang up and said, um, I'm an actor from New Zealand. Uh, would I be able to come and see some of your rehearsals, how you're working, whatever? They said, oh, yeah, come along. I met the director and it turned out he was really fascinated and enthusiastic about kabuki theatre, Japanese kabuki. And I had just arrived fresh off the boat from Japan, you know, immersed in the study of kabuki theatre and all that. And we got on very well. He invited me to the opening night of this production of Royal Hunt of the Sun. 
at the London Coliseum. And there was me sitting in this amazing theater with this huge dome. And, and I'd never seen anything like this in my life. And the scale of it and the, the glamor of it um, was just amazing, amazing. And interesting, I, I, on, on a little island in Greece, my wife and I have a little house. And one of the, the local villagers um, was coming to London and we um, had a, a spare ticket to the opening night of, or the press night of Iolanthe at the Colosseum, and we brought him along. And he was coming from this island, which has a population of 2,000 people, sitting in the London Colosseum, being blown away as I was many years before, and seeing he had never seen so many people under one roof in his life. And he didn't know what to make of this Gilbert and Sullivan, um, you know, hoo-ha that's going on, but was just blown away by the experience of the audience and the performance of the lavishness of it. So it's a wonderful spectacle. There is another theatre I love, probably one of my favourite theatres, which is called the Teatro Olimpico, which is in Vincenza, which is in the north of Italy, just north of Venice. And it is the earliest indoor theatre in Europe. It's a Renaissance theatre. So it goes back to the early or mid 16th century. And it exists in beautiful preservation to this day. And actors performed Commedia dell'arte plays on this stage as, as well as other performances. And so that's a, so those would be my two favorite theaters. Another question we always like to ask our guests, Ken, is if you could wake up tomorrow and have any God-given talent and forego the years and years of training that most people have to go through, what talent would you like to have? Uh, it would be to be an acrobat. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would love to be able to fly through the air. I always wanted to be able to do a fish flop. <laughs> And I've never quite succeeded. And I think the, the, the moment has passed. And I always wanted to do a backward somersault. But I remember in, during the end of the Cultural Revolution, that's in 1976 in Beijing, being taken around to see the training of Beijing opera actors in China. And they got one chap to demonstrate the skills for me. And he did these backward somersaults, flam, 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 flam. And I counted them. And I think there were, he did 22 on the spot, 22 wow. backward somersaults on the spot. And I thought, wow, I have never seen anything like that in human, you know, feat of physical endurance or, or, or whatever. Um, but I, I had to do other things in my life. <laughs> Well, well, that leads us on to our quick fire round. So we'll ask you five questions, this or that, and you need to answer as quick as possible. Uh, all right. Teaching or directing? Directing. Oh, no. I'll probably both, actually. The, if I could have the, the teaching reaches, in the end, more people down through the line. Directing is, you're very aware of the ephemeral nature of theatre, that it disappears. So all the productions I've directed in my life, and there were many of them, have all disappeared. There's nothing to show for it. The teaching I've done, I've taught about 2,000 actors over the years. They're out there doing it making it their own, carrying it on. So I would have to revise that and say teaching. 
And with the book as well, you're reaching people that you're not even yes. aware of, such as me. This is true. This is true. No. Good. Thank you. <laughs> Would you rather have dinner before a show or after the show? Before the show, because I'd be too hungry during the show. <laughs> <laughs> Would you rather play the top of the chain Magnifico character or the bottom of the chain with the Zani character? The Zani character, definitely, because they had all the fun. They were much more interesting roles. Most and of the audience loved them. Would you rather have mulled wine by the fire or pims on the lawn? Mulled wine by the fire because it's <clears throat> very cosy and nice. And it's probably with loved ones, with family, in an intimate situation. And something about winter, that it brings us close mm. together. It's a time... It's a kind of cultural season, isn't it? Definitely. It brings us close together. And from that, we, from that darkness, we look forward to the light of the spring that comes. Oh, I love that. What a lovely answer. Would you rather teach a group of first years or a group of third years? A group of first years because they have, they've, they've not got any preconceptions. Um, and so their mind is open. They may not have the skills of mm. the third year, but they're ready for anything and they're still enthusiastic. And most important of all, they haven't kind of lost their confidence. They still feel they can change mm. the world. And they have that wonderful mm. feeling of, I got into this drama school and I'm going to be amazing. And they go for it. And that's a great energy to work with. So that's what I say to my students on day one of the teaching. Remember the point at which you entered because that's all you will have to take mm. away from you. We will add skills to you, but you come back to that point. You must remember your personality, your unique personality, because that's the thing that's special about you. That's what got you into this drama school, and that's what you will take into the profession. But it's not actually a circle model. It's really a spiral. So you will come back to that point, but higher up the spiral... Um, with all the skills that we have given you. But it's still on that axis. Mm. You can see my gestures here, although it's audio. Um, on that axis, um, <laughs> you, you are still... <laughs> some wonderful gestures, listeners. If, you could, if, you, uh, if you're listening to this on a run or in your car, he's doing these wonderful spiral, very elegant gestures. <laughs> well, I can highly recommend the book to anyone I think starting out in the acting profession anyone who's been in it for 40 years to anyone teaching directing and and I also just think anyone in life really that wants to get mm. to the next stage of their life in there's so much coaching in there there's so many uh, things that are so handy to know I think just in how to navigate your relationships yourself at work in the business place I, I can't recommend it enough and and i will talk all day if i give my review for this book and we don't have time for that because your time is very <laughs> precious thank you so much for joining us it's just been a, an absolute pleasure but it's very kind of you to say so it has been such a treat thanks ken great for me too thank you very much great to be on the show oh it was a treat to talk to ken and actually i've got to say it was a treat for me to hear that interview again with a slightly clearer head. So when we recorded this interview, Mike was deadly sick. I was really, really sick. I can't even remember what was wrong with me, but oh, 
Uh, the interview is actually filmed as well, isn't it? We we recorded it on video, and I am grey like on that gray. video. But you were there, and you <laughs> made it, and the interview was fabulous anyway. So. Ken was the remedy I needed. Doctor Theatre, they talk about Doctor Theatre, don't they? Well, there we go. Ken came and delivered. <laughs> so that's why Mike was a little bit absent in that interview. <laughs> But I'm sure that tonight when we head down to the CAA, he will make up for that in abundance. Don't jinx me. Imagine if now I just started vomiting. (laughs) Don't forget to get in touch with us on any of our social media platforms. We always love hearing from you guys. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok and YouTube. Just search Twice Nightly the podcast and you'll find us. And if that wasn't enough, as always, you can leave us a voice message on our SpeakPipe www.speakpipe.com forward slash twice nightly the podcast all that's left for us to say is see you next week shut up <laughs> <laughs>